Okay, so we're trying something new today. Um, try not to sit so much since that's why I do the entire day when I'm working. Uh, but I thought I'd try doing this standing and that will be extra motivation to get this um, done quicker um, uh, and not ramble so much. So welcome. Hello and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. It's uh, a daily show where I read the Bible every day. I read four different passages uh, from this Bible plan. It's the Robert Marie McShane Bible plan that takes me through the Bible in a year. And today we are looking at Exodus chapter 13. Yeah, Luke chapter 16, Job chapter 31, and 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Can't really see it. <laughs> <laughs> without my glasses i think those are the chapters so again um yeah welcome thank you for joining me this is life and we're going to begin by praying and asking for god's help uh, heavenly father thank you that we stand uh in your presence uh on grace you know it's only by your grace that we are enabled to stand before you a holy god and thank you it is the grace that comes through the lord jesus christ please would you give us grace to receive your word to understand it and to obey it we pray this in jesus name amen amen so hello again uh, welcome to the daily bible reading show we're just beginning our first reading from exodus chapter 13. Uh, forgotten what it's like you know to speak standing up. i'm so used to sitting down in my chair um, it'll be so strange if you ever have to meet again in person have to stand in front of the congregation i guess this is good practice for that so yes yeah, so exodus chapter 13 the lord said to moses consecrate to me every firstborn male the first firstborn first offspring of every womb among the israelites belongs to me whether man or animal then moses said to the people commemorate this day the day you came out of egypt out of the land of slavery because the lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand eat nothing containing yeast Today, in the month of Abib, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me. Uh, when I came out of Egypt, his observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder in your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time, year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised an oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord uh, the first offspring of every womb, all the firstborn males of the livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused 
to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. That is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for a battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath he had said god will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place after leaving sukkoth they camped at etham on the edge of the desert by day the lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Ah, so it begins with this um, festival. You're supposed to celebrate this. Well, it begins by saying they're supposed to consecrate their firstborn males, but then it goes on to the festival and then it outlines what it means to consecrate or to make holy, to sanctify, to put aside the firstborn of every male, you know, every animal and every son, you know, they meant to, to put it aside, it belongs to God. Um, so every belongs to me, God says, verse 2, whether man or animal. And then verse 3, he says, commemorate this day. This is what Moses says to the people. This is a very holy day, celebration, and it's meant to last for seven days. I think this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they're not supposed to have any yeast at all in the home. So you're supposed to eat bread made without yeast. You know, that means like roti prata, flat bread. You know, it doesn't rise. It's very flat because uh, it's meant to remember that time when they didn't have time to make bread with yeast. They're supposed to hurry and get ready. And even their provisions, they brought their bowls with dough in it that didn't have yeast and it didn't have time for it to rise. So when they go into the promised land, they're supposed to still celebrate this every year. And uh, I think it's from the 14th day of the first month and for seven days. So starting with the Passover and for seven days, this feast of unleavened bread. And then on the seventh day, there's this other celebration as well. So everything is pointing back, pointing back to the Passover, pointing back. And it's meant to be a reminder. He says, you know, when your son asks you what's going on, remind him with a strong hand, God delivered us from the house of slavery. Where does it say this? Uh, verse 9, The observance for you will be like a sign in your hand, reminding your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Again, this repeated phrase of how God did this with his show of power, you know, with his outstretched arm. You know, he did this intentionally when dis in the display of his power to show that he is God over Pharaoh and he is God over this people. And so you must keep, verse 10, this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. Every year is supposed to remind your children that this happened to our people. So they are supposed to do this in the land, verse 11, in the land that God gives to them, the land of the Canaanites, which he promised on oath to give to you and your forefathers. 
And in return, verse 12, you are to give to God all the first offspring of every womb. And this applies to every male in your livestock, verse 12. You know, you're supposed to redeem it or you're supposed to kill it. You know, verse 13, redeem with the lamb every donkey. But if you don't redeem it, you're supposed to break its neck because all of it belongs to God. So redeem meanings instead of this die, this animal dies, this donkey dies, another lamb will die in its place. Otherwise, it belongs to God. And so it's supposed to be sacrificed. And so in the same way, redeem every firstborn among your sons. In verse 14, again, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say that God did this. God did this with a mighty hand. He delivered us out of the land of slavery. It's meant to be a reminder that the reason why you have this freedom and when you're in the land, the reason why you have this blessing is because God brought you out of a different place of slavery and of death. And it's a good reminder to have when you are in blessing and in life that all this came at a cost. All this came through God. All this came because God saved you from a very different situation, which otherwise you would have suffered and died and been under slavery. But especially when you're blessed and you're in this situation where you wonder, where did this come from? Remind them that this came from God. And verse 15, they're supposed to retell the story of the Exodus. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. And he killed all those animals and uh, sons in Egypt. Therefore, now we kill these offsprings, you know, these, these sacrifices. So we don't kill offspring, we sacrifice so that they will be preserved. We sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. Verse 16, it will be like a sign again on your hand, on your forehead. I think that's idea, the idea that it's just what you do every day. I think the, the symbolism of uh, your mouth and your hand is what you do when you eat. Every time you eat something, you're meant to remember, oh, God redeemed me through this, you know, this meal, this Passover lamb. Something died so that I could have this sustenance, this blessing, this meal. So um, that's the first bit. The second bit is about crossing the Red Sea. You know, Pharaoh, when he led the people go, verse 17, God didn't give them that direct route through the land of Philistines, even though that was shorter, because God said they might face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around, so the roundabout way through the desert, through the Red Sea. The Israelites went up off Egypt armed for battle. So like for war. And verse 19, an interesting um, detail about Joseph and his bones. You know, that he swore, made them swear that he would take them out of Egypt. 430 years earlier, I think this is at the end of Exodus, Joseph, yeah, Joseph stayed. And then he says in verse 24, chapter 50, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid, take you out of this land. And he made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to you aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Very interesting connection back to Genesis. And this is here how Joseph was so sure <laughs> that God would save them and so sure he would bring them to the land that he said 430 years earlier that they should get his bones out from Egypt. So that's what they did. Um, and verse 20, after leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham, at the edge of the desert. And God was with them by this powerful presence. You know, by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way by night, by the pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night, no stopping. 
you know, God was constantly with them, lighting their way, showing His presence, that He was guiding them, He was with them, He was abiding with them. And He said, God will surely come to your aid. Yeah, oh, sorry, that's Joseph. <laughs> that's, that's earlier. And verse 22, Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people constantly with them. God's presence, God's protection, and God's power. So yeah, that's Exodus chapter 13. Yeah, I think the, the I think that's why having a lectern is a good idea. It gets kind of heavy. Yeah, but how is this so far? Um, is the audio okay? Um, yeah, this really does remind me of times when I have to speak in front of um, a group of people and then you kind of like eyeball them except there's no one here. <laughs> so I mean, you look at the camera, but even then, you know, usually you look down and you look at the people seated seated there. And yes, actually having a lectern would be helpful. Maybe I'll try to do that next time. Uh, but yeah, good. Nice to be able to stand and uh, yeah, stretch my legs. Yeah. <laughs> okay, what's our second chapter? Luke chapter 16, is that right? Luke 16. Yeah. Hmm. Today was a really good day. Very productive at work. Um, yeah. And also this week, Ah, oh, so good. No talks this week. Oh, such a luxury. Um, not to have to prepare for a talk, uh, to get stressed. Uh, these days, not really stressed, but just all the technical things and just the preparation, getting up at four, you know, writing the text and coming up with illustrations. Oh, speaking of illustrations and preaching, today I saw a really, really good article by Mike Rater. Uh, if there is one person, one speaker whom... I've learned so much just from hearing him speak. Is this Australian uh, pastor? He was also a missionary to India, and he later on became the headmaster of Sydney Missionary Bible College or something, something like that, SMBC or something like that. And now he is he heads up this ministry called the Center for Biblical Preaching. Mike Rater wrote an article called Seven Things I Wish." preachers would know and i think he had a few points which i was really struck by he says i wish people would understand what a good application you know how useful it will be and how helpful it will be and also things like how good it is uh, he wishes people preachers would understand how good it is just to commend the church the things that are doing well and to be gracious in that and to remind them to commend them for that in christ and just very positive very clear points that he brings across. Also, he says another one was that I wish people would know that you know it's not just coming up with that correct sermon. I can't remember what his wording for that was, but just about being theologically correct. And you're not giving a lecture for your Bible college um, lecturers grade you. You're giving uh, God's word that people are hungering for, they're asking about, and almost guide them in terms of that application and direction that you're speaking towards them, making sure that they understand it, not. You know, not just that you get the points for getting all those theology points correct. And I think that's just a very loving thing for a very experienced pastor. Uh, speaking of which, actually, Mike Rater was one of the only people, I must say, you know, for such a well-known pastor who's spoken at conferences all around the world. You know, initially, uh, I once uh, wanted to have this crazy idea of having a Malaysian conference. I wrote to a bunch of people. He actually wrote back. 
you know, he actually considered it. He said, you know, my schedule just wouldn't allow it. But I think he he was so gracious right back directly. You know, he he read the email and he got back to me. And he's all the way in Australia. I thought that was so gracious of him. Yeah, I didn't expect. Honestly, I didn't expect that. But it goes to show character. Shows goes to show humility. It goes to show just that、um, weightiness of having that privilege to speak in front of a people and not. Picking and choosing based on convenience or just size of the crowd, but here's just one random guy writing to him, and he he actually bothered to write back. So I really really appreciate that, Mike. Thank you so much, and I think it shows it shows in the way that you speak and the way that you teach others to preach as well, with others in mind, with love, and with that integrity that comes from preaching the gospel. So I commend that to you. I put the link up in my Facebook page. Yeah, yeah, really really good pastor.、Um, Learned so much from him. Uh, met him a couple of times last time through my old church back in Singapore, and、uh, just through some staff training events,、uh, which I sat in. I was not 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 at all in staff in the church, but I had the privilege of sit, speaking, sitting in on, and learning from him. Another another tip I got from him that really stuck in my mind was he said that if you cannot illustrate it, you do not understand it. Yes, one of the key principles that I've that stuck with me、uh, throughout my entire life. That just for our own sakes of understanding something, being able to illustrate it, not just for the sakes of the people who hear it, but for my own sake. Do I understand this passage? If so, I should be able to illustrate it in my own voice, in a way that actually would、uh, make use of my own life experiences. If I can't do that, then how sure I am? How sure am I that I actually understand this point that's being made in Scripture? Yeah. So just for my own integrity and help, just for general helpfulness of being able to illustrate a point from a passage. Okay, that that's enough. Let's <laughs> let's go back to today's reading. Our second reading today is from Luke chapter sixteen. Jesus said to his disciples, "There was a rich man." Whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions, so he called him in and asked him, "What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer." The manager said to himself, "What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me." Into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, "How much do you owe my master?" Eight hundred gallons of olive oil. He replied. The master to- manager told him, "Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it four hundred. From eight hundred to four hundred." Then he asked the second, "And how much do you owe?" A thousand bushels of wheat. He replied and told him, "Take your bill and make it eight hundred." So big discounts <laughs> to these people. Who owed money to his boss, who had just fired him, <laughs> and the reason why he's doing this is he's trying to get into their good books. He's letting them off their debt so that they remember, aha,、uh-huh, this was a guy who did me a favor. Maybe I'll have to do him a favor in the future because he says, you know, what can I do? I'm not strong enough to dig. You know, he's he doesn't want to do manual labor. I'm too ashamed to beg. So he says, verse four, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here. People will welcome me into their houses. Verse eight: The master commended, commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use 
worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed with eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with very much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy and handling worldly riches, worldly wealth, sorry, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've been not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this. They were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. It's interesting that Jesus compares Christians with non-Christians, you know, the people of the light, he says, verse 8, you know, are not as shrewd as the people of this world. There's something that these non-Christians, these people who are worldly, who are dishonest, who are shrewd, who are dealing in terms of their money a bit more faithfully, a bit more shrewdly, a bit more even faithfully than, than all these Christians in that they understand it's not just about the money. The money is there to be used to gain relationships, to gain friends. And, you know, shrewd businessmen do that. That's why they have all these dinners. They take them out, you know, for drinks and for dinner. They buy them gifts, especially during Chinese New Year. All these hampers appear during Chinese New Year. It's not just because they like them. They're using their money, their wealth, to gain their favor of their friends. And Christians, on the other hand, they think they're being wise by holding on, <laughs> by not using by saving up even all the money and all the wealth and all the property that God has given them. And Jesus is saying, you know, you're like the Pharisees. You're saving it because you love the money, because you're afraid of the risk of losing your money. But God is saying, who will welcome you into eternal dwellings? Verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, it will be gone. It's just worldly as the world is. Material, it will be gone. When that happens, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What's Jesus talking about? Who's doing the welcoming? Maybe it's these friends whom they've used their wealth to witness to with the gospel using material things to point it towards eternal riches. Or maybe they themselves, and maybe it's talking about how when they enter in heaven, they will be able to see their friends there. You know, think about their welfare and use your material wealth, your material welfare, your material means to enable the gospel to reach to them. That's one possible interpretation. And I think that's a very good one. But also maybe it might be determining your own, <laughs> your own salvation. That somehow in your thinking, that somehow this is what it's for. It's your concern for the salvation of others reflects the reality of your own salvation before God. Let me say that again. Your concern for the salvation of others reflects the reality and the certainty of your own salvation before God. It is, you know, the very definition of a Christian that they are concerned for the salvation of their friends. And therefore, if you're the church treasurer, you know, this is particularly an application point for you. The money that's there is not meant to be saved. It's not meant to be shown to Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you just come back when he returns at the end of the day. Show them the books. Oh, look how much we save. No, this money is meant to be spent for the kingdom of God so that many will hear the gospel and many will be in the kingdom of God at the end of the day. People are to be, you know, the money is meant to be spent on people, for people, to bring people to God.
very, very convicting. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So rich man, you know, we don't know who he is. He was just rich. He was dressed in purple, rich clothes, fine linen, lived in a rich house, luxury every day. And he had this gate, and outside this gate was this poor man, outside this rich man's house, this poor man whose name was Lazarus. And this man was covered in sores. He wanted to eat what he could see the rich man was eating, you know, what, um, some fancy meal. Uh, but the dogs, they came and licked his sores. Very big disparity between the very, very rich and the very, very poor within eyesight of each other. One was luxury and luxury eating, luxury clothed and luxury. The other one was clothed in sores. Dogs were his only company. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where there was torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger to water in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Well, Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony and besides all this between us and you there is this great chasm has been fixed this great gap so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us he answered then i beg you father send lazarus to my father's house for i have five brothers let him warn them so that they may they will not also come to this place of torment abraham replied they have moses and prophets let them listen to them no, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So both of them die. One is in hell and the other was in heaven by Abraham's side. And the rich man who was rich and he was living a luxury all his life is now in agony in the fires of hell he looks up and he sees abraham and he sees lazarus and he says to abraham you know please send lazarus to dip his finger into this water and cool my tongue just go thing like that because he is, is in so much agony and abraham says that's not possible there's this big gap i can't come to you no one can come to me and so as a concession the rich man says then why don't you send lazarus to my living family to my father and my brothers, you know, so that they don't come here. 
so that they know that there's this horrible place they could go to if they don't live a life that is faithful before God, as faithful with the things that God has given them in terms of their riches, that they learn my lesson so that they don't end up like me. But Abraham also says, no, you know, they have Moses and the prophets. And Moses and the prophets is a way of referring to the Old Testament, to the revelation of God and scripture. They have the Bible. This should be sufficient. This should be enough. And um, Abraham says, no, 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 no. You know, um, they won't, they won't, this is not enough. You have to send Lazarus, you know, because they, if someone from the dead goes to them, <laughs> that means comes up from the dead, then they will repent. And Moses says, verse, uh, Abraham says, if they don't listen to Moses and prophets and the prophets, they won't even be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Notice here the attitude of this rich man who is not named. You know, we don't know who he is. Nazareth is named. That means he is, you know, known before God. You know, even though he's not recognized by anyone else, you know, he's known before God and he's by Abraham's side. You know, that this rich man doesn't even ask Lazarus for his help. You know, to him, Lazarus is still nobody. You know, he still thinks he's this rich man who has this status. He still gives commands to Abraham to do this. You know, so full of his own pride and of himself, he's still giving commands to everyone around him while he is in agony. But his idea, but his suggestion is, in it, is an interesting one. He says, you know, he wants his family to repent and he believes that it's not enough to have the Bible. Abraham says, you know, if you believe this, this is enough to point you towards the reality of what will happen at the end of your life and beyond your life, that there is a judgment, there is a heaven, there is a hell, there is a God. Abraham says it is enough. They have this, look at this, read this, and know with certainty what, what is being pictured here is real. But the guy suggests that if someone comes from the dead, rises up from this situation beyond death, then they'll go, aha, uh -huh, this is real. And you can't help, you can't help but think of Jesus rising from the dead and showing the reality of this resurrection power of God, that he is really from God. He has come to judge with all the authority of God. Then, you know, therefore, has God made this concession, therefore, by sending Jesus back from the dead, by raising him from the dead after his death on the cross? And actually, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's because I think if they don't believe the Bible, that's what Abraham is saying. If you don't believe this, you won't believe this. If you don't believe Moses and the prophets, you won't believe the one who comes back from the dead to preach essentially that same message of Moses and the prophets that you need to repent. You need to turn back to God. There is this judgment from God and there is also this salvation that has come through the Son of God. In other words, the message for us is while we are still alive, <laughs> before we get to that situation of no turning back, this is God's word to us, warning us of this reality of the life that is to come. Cool. So that's Luke chapter 16. Job 31, 31. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I had a um, Bible study this morning uh, at work. It was really good, actually. We looked at the previous chapter from Luke chapter 15. Only just a bit from the lost son returning back to his father. So we didn't look at the second son. So son asks the father for his inheritance and he goes away, wastes it all, but comes back home and asks to be a servant. But the father receives him back uh, with open arms. 
has this big celebration. They, the question I asked them was, <laughs> what kind of punishment do your parents have for you when you did that naughty thing? When you really rebelled against them? When you, you know, what's the most creative? What's the most severe punishment that your parents ever gave you? Or indeed, if you're a parent, what kind of severe punishment have you given out to your children? And it was kind of funny. I was very insightful to hear about all the different <laughs> punishments that we've had to endure, especially in Asian families. You know, very very creative, actually using all kinds of implements in the house, all kinds of psychological, you know, you know, things that make us ashamed about the things that we've done as well. But the big take home from that, um, from that small bit that we looked at as well, was that just how difficult it is to forgive. Someone whom we really, really love. You know, forgiving someone who is a stranger, you know, not bangs into a car or bumps into us in the street. That's one thing. But when it's personal, when the offense is done to us, you know, that's even personal because this person actually loves us or ought to love us and doesn't. It makes it harder and not easier to forgive someone whom you truly love. And to see, therefore, this father forgive his son for doing something that is so embarrassing, that's so over the top, but not meet out any punishment. You know, his son expects him to expects him to not expects to come back and to not be treated as his son. No, the father receives him back. Shows just how God, you know, has received us and forgiven us in a way that is completely, completely loving and completely, completely real. That when we received back before God, before whom all of us have sinned, it shows that we received truly into His family. You know, as uh, like the Son again, you know, who has really, you know, taken everything from God, taken everything from His Father, and it turned His back on Him. Turning back is not something that we should delay in doing, because God is even more merciful. God is even more. Eager to receive us back into His presence, and that's only possible because of Jesus. Yeah, we'll see more of that next week in our Bible study. Job chapter thirty-one was it thirty-one? Job says, "I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. For what is a man? What is man's lot from God above? His heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin from the wicked?" Disaster for those who do wrong. Does he not see my ways and count my every step? If I've walked in falsehood, or my foot has hurried over deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales, and He will know that I am blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown, and may my crops be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I've lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain, and may other men sleep with her, for that would have been shameful, a sin to be judged. It is fire that burns to destruction. It would have been uprooted, my harvest. If I've denied justice to my men servants and maid servants, if they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when He called? To account, did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? If I've denied the desires of the poor, or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I've kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared him as would a father, and from my birth I guided the widow. If I've seen anyone perishing from lack of clothing or a needy man without a garment, and his heart. Did not bless me for warming me with the fleece from my sheep. If I raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, 
then let my arm fall from the shoulder, let it be broken off at, at the joint, you know, arm just falling off. For I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. If I put my trust in gold or set to pure gold, you are my security. If I've rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune of my hands had gained. If I regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor, so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. If I have rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against his life. If the men of my household have never said, Who has not had his fill of Job's meat? But no stranger had to spend a night in the street, for my door was always open to the traveler if I have concealed my sin as men do by hiding my guilt in my heart. Because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silence and would not go outside. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of on every step like a prince I would approach him. If my land cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I've devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenant, then let briars come up instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. So Job comes up with a scenario, if I've done this, if I've done this, if I've done this, therefore, you know, I should be punished. Therefore, I should be judged by God. And he talks initially about if he has been impure in his thoughts, you know, made a covenant with my eyes, verse 1, not to look lustfully at a woman, you know, or uh, if verse 5, if I've walked in falsehood and my steps have turned from the path, verse 7, or later on, you know, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, verse 9, so he considers all these scenarios whereby his moral integrity, his moral purity has been um, has been shaken, has been compromised, then he says, I deserve all these punishments. You know, disaster from the disaster, verse 3, you know, verse 6, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I'm blameless. Uh, verse 8, others eat what I've sown, my crops be unrooted. Uh, verse uh, 10, well, okay, um, someone else sleep with his wife, you know, for that would have been shameful a sin to be judged. It is a fire that burns to destruction. It would have unrooted my harvest. So this situations whereby Job, if he had compromised his purity, you know, he, he wishes that, you know, he deserves to be judged, you know, for these actions and these thoughts and this, these motivations which were unpure. He's willing to be weighed along these lines across his character. But not only moral purity, but also injustice. Verse 13, if I deny justice to my men servants and maidservants. So he puts himself up to be weighed against anything that he's done wrong, but also anything that he hasn't done that is right. He hasn't given justice to people when they come to him and ask him for help. Um, so he considers the people around him. He says, you know, what will I do? And God confronts me. What will I answer when he calls me to account? Did not he who made the womb make them? It means he's considering that, you know, before other men, you know, God will consider his relationships with them and his responsibility to them to help them because God has made me and them irrespective of our class. 
So he mentions all the poor and the weary and the widow, verse 16. If I deny the desires of the poor, you know, let the eyes of the widow grow weary. If I've kept bread to myself and not shared it with the fatherless, meaning if he's denied out of his positions of wealth, of his status, and he's denied it, especially from people who don't benefit and are blessed with this, then let him be judged as well. You know, <laughs> you know if he's done any of these things, uh, then verse 22, let my arm fall off the shoulder. Let it be broken off the joint. <coughs> and again, you know, it's one thing for him to say that I deserve this if I've done wrong. But here he's saying, if I haven't done the right thing, if I haven't actually responded to those who needed my help and not done this, then just as severe, you know, the punishment be upon me. And finally, he says, if I trust in something other than God, in money, in power, in my position, verse 24, if I put my trust in gold or said to the gold, you are my security. If I rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune of my hands, you know, I regarded the sun, you know, idolatry, the sun and its moon is that if I worshiped other things or even secretly in my heart, verse 27 was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage. Then all these also would be sins to be judged and would have been unfaithful to God on high so unfaithfulness unrighteousness idolatry but finally you know even over those who oppose them his enemies if i've rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune gloated over the trouble that came to him verse 29 i have not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against his life if the men of my household have never said who has not filled his job's meat but no stranger had spent a night in the street for my door was always open to the traveler here's job you know not gloating over his enemies and not acting like his enemies he's often shared and was fair and was generous to everyone he's opened up his door to the traveler this is one of those etiquette things uh, in Eastern, you know, etiquette whereby you're meant to offer, offer protection to anyone who's traveling at night. It was very dangerous. And Job did that uh, because I guess he had a nice house and he had a secure place to live. Verse 33, if I concealed my sin as men do by hiding the guilt in my heart because I so feared the crowd, kept silent, would not go outside. He says, you know, I didn't do any of these things. And so this is, I guess, a testimony to Job's uh, blamelessness, you know, his regard before he, all these calamities happened. Because they're trying to say you did something wrong in the past to cause you this pain that you're suffering in the present. And Job says, if that were true, then yes, please, please judge me. You know, if, if, if that was absolutely true, if I did anything, any one of those things that was either wrong or denied the right, or that I didn't, or I worship something other than God, then let God judge me. But his point is, I didn't. I didn't do any of these things. And therefore now I submit myself before God in terms of my conscience, in terms of my record before the God who sees everything, and to ask him to weigh me on his scales. Verse 35, oh, that I have someone to hear me, I sign now my defense. So he writes everything now. This is, I, I, I'm going to stick by this record. I'm not going to hide it. I'm going, actually going to voice this out. I'm going to write it, put it in writing and submit it to God. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on his shoulder. I put it on the crown. I wouldn't hide it. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's all these, all these petitions. He actually put it on himself, writing on his, write it on his clothing. 
I would give him an account of every step, like a prince. I would approach him. If my land cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I've devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let the briars come up against instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. So Job makes his final appeal before God by bringing before God his spotless record and saying, you know, God, please judge me. The others are saying, God is judging you, but says, no, 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 this, this is unfair. And I actually want to face that judgment before God. I want to be weighed because as far as I can tell, I have walked blamelessly before God. Just some points of application. I don't think any of us can do this. And if such is Job and such is his record that he is able to and he is willing to do this, we can't, or at least I can't. And I look at this and I wonder, you know, how is it that he's able to do this and still stand? And how is it that how much less am I able to do this before God? And the truth is because Jesus died on the cross and he, after living a blameless life, because Jesus now sets before God his spotless record, Jesus is laying before God all his blamelessness and all his righteousness and all his purity, not for his own vindication, but for mine, if that makes sense. That therefore, the only reason why I can now approach God the way that Job is approaching God is not because anything I've done, but because of everything that Jesus now submits before God as his righteousness instead of my unrighteousness, his purity over my impurity, his judgment that's fallen on him so that I might receive the blessings and the forgiveness and the love of full rights of a son that the love that the father has for his son instead, instead of him because he took my sin upon himself on the cross so yeah that's job chapter 31 last chapter second chronicles chapter second corinthians <laughs> well my eyesight's really shot one second corinthians chapter one i wrote recently to Crossway Church, which I'm speaking at two Sundays from now, uh, and I'm looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, I think. That also happens to be Mother's Day. And 1 Peter chapter 4 is talking about suffering not as an evildoer, <laughs> but suffering for righteousness' sake. And it's somehow it's supposed to, I'm trying to tie it to Mother's Day. So if you have any ideas, I would really appreciate it. But it'd be good. I mean, it'd be good to honor moms on that day. I know Mothering Sunday is not really just about moms, it's about mothering church, but why not making about moms to honor them? And there must be a connection between, you know, like that's the kind of um, lesson that our moms give us, right? You know, don't suffer by doing the wrong thing. But if you suffer, and as a result of standing up for the right thing, standing up for Christ, that is almost a suffering worst, worth and undergoing for God's sake and for our own character as well. Um, but yeah, um, looking forward to that. Um, well, think about it. Start thinking about some points, some illustrations, and start, you know, reading the passage in earnest over the next week. That's so nice. This week, no talks, uh, no presentations, nothing to prepare. Um, maybe I'll do a video. Yeah, that'll be fun. I've always wanted to do a technical video answering some Q&As I got from a recent interview that I did last week at the barn. I wanted to do a, a technical um, video, especially on audio, because I'm a 
big fan of good audio, especially for sermons. Um, and just how easy it is to set it up at such low cost compared to video. You know, everyone's obsesses over the video, but um, audio is 50% of video. You know, audio is um, how you convey what you're saying, which is so important when you're giving a message from the Bible. You want it to be understandable. You want people to almost ignore what they're looking at and to just focus on what they're listening. And audio also just in terms of speaking in a tone that is loving sometimes you know when we get nervous as speakers we raise our voice you know speak faster i always speak fast i know that that's that's a failing of mine but sometimes when we get impatient or we get stressed out because of the lights and stuff we start raising the volume of our voice and we start speaking and uncomprehensibly and that doesn't help either and that's one of the reasons why i have my mic my headphones sorry so that there's this kind of like feedback loop so i'm constantly almost hearing what I'm speaking from the perspective of the hearers. At least I find that helpful. Uh, um, gives me again some some of that perspective of what people are getting from, you know, this whole reading and this whole speaking session. Yeah. Okay. Last uh, reading for today: Second Corinthians chapter one. So this is still Paul writing to the same church uh, that we saw the last few weeks reading through 1 Corinthians uh, and he continues on with this second letter uh, 2 Corinthians Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the church of God in Corinth together with all the saints throughout Achaia grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is Firm, because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. As you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. So let's just pause there and just try to digest what we just read, this whole chunk about God as the God of comfort. Paul is writing this church again and talking about his situation of suffering, I guess. He's, he's almost boasting about it. You know, God is the God of comfort because I'm suffering now. God is the God of comfort because I can experience this comfort through my suffering that I'm going through right now. And there's a connection with you because if you are comforted, it is because of our suffering. If we are comforted, it is for your salvation, but also for your situations when you're suffering as well, so that you can have this comfort that overflows from us. So there's this idea of overflowing, overflowing. You know, we are suffering, so God pours out comfort on us, not just for our sakes, 
but so that it overflows upon the people around us, you know, so that we are able to comfort others as well, so that we can pour comfort when they are suffering in the same kind of suffering that we are undergoing. Worth thinking about if ever you suffer and you think, you know, why is this going on? You know, especially if you're doing the right thing, you're serving God, you're doing ministry, it's going, why is this happening to me? And then God pours upon you that comfort and you go, aha, that's why. But that's not only why. It's not just so that you can experience this comfort then. It's so that it can prepare you to comfort others as well. Suffering prepares us, in, in other words, to be able to comfort others. Suffering prepares us for ministry. Suffers, suffering makes us better ministers of God, God's comfort, especially in situations of suffering. And this is the kind of suffering that comes from ministry. Verse 8 you know, don't want you to be uninformed. You need to know this, that the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. Paul was traveling through Asia, especially planting churches and preaching the gospel. He was suffering as a result of this ministry. They were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. They despaired even of life. <laughs> there were times I was wondering, you know, we can't take this anymore. We're going to die. But indeed, in our hearts, he says, we felt this sentence of death. But this happened, why? So that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You know, there are moments when you think, you know, I'm ready to die. You know, I, I think I can't do anything else but die. And then you realize that God is not just God in your life, but God raises the dead. You know, how real is the resurrection? How real is God's power over death? You don't realize that until you face your own death and you face that sentence of death inside your hearts. And he has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. You know, notice this, this past and this future, you know, meaning there's this situation in the past. You look back at all the situations where God has blessed you and delivered you from those dangerous situations. If, it, if they're going to be a future deliverance, that means there's going to be future dangerous as well. Paul knows that the journey hasn't finished. Or maybe Paul is talking about that final deliverance, that final judgment. And that's the one that really matters, that God will deliver us from his final judgment. On him we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in the answer to prayers of many. Many will praise God, not just for, hey, you know, look at you, you know, God has delivered you, but praise God because God has answered your prayers. And that's why, you know, he's asking them to pray, not just for my sake, you pray for me, I'm going through this tough situation, pray that God will help me, but so that God will answer your prayers for your sake, so that you know when you see God deliver me, that you know that actually, hey, this is a God who answers prayers, answers your prayers, and you know that he is God, and therefore you continue to pray to him when you are in trouble. See the connection. Verse 12, now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace for we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand and i hope that as you have understood us in part you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the lord jesus because i was confident of this i plan to visit you first so that you might benefit twice i plan to visit you on my way to macedonia and then to come back to you from macedonia 
and then to have you send me on my way to Judea, to Judea. When I plan this, did I do it lightly, or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. Uh, set his seal of ownership upon us and put his seal spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. Hmm, interesting. What's this yes, yes, no, no business and about this visiting them twice? Well, Paul apparently was planning to go to Macedonia to take up this offering, this collection to bring to Jerusalem. And we saw that at the end of chapter 16 yesterday in 1 Corinthians. But here he says apparently he wasn't able to make that visit. So he wanted to stop by Corinth, go to Macedonia, come back to Corinth and he says that so he can bless them twice but apparently that visit didn't quite happen and because that didn't happen even though he planned it people are saying oh you know Paul is not reliable he says yes but he means no he may he says no but then he means yes so he says you know in Christ you know there is this certainty of the gospel that he wants them to know that actually what he's been preaching has been this certainty of that what Christ has done and to see that that does not then um, discount, you know, him making these plans. So it's not the other way. It's not that, therefore, you know, trust in Christ, therefore, you know, don't doubt me. But actually, Paul in his grace and his love towards the Corinthians actually changed his plans for their sakes, you know, so that he can always bless them and not, not be in, uh, well, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> I think he, he's just trying to show them that actually he's not shifting from yes and no. But he says in verse uh, 19, it has always been yes in Christ. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So through him, the Amen is spoken to us through the, to the glory of God. And so I guess he doesn't answer he actually doesn't he doesn't quite answer uh, how then he rationalizes why he doesn't come he, he does it at the end he says he does it to spare them um this to spare them that he didn't return to court and i think because if he did come back he would you know bring discipline he'll be rather harsh on them because this is a church with problems and so he kind of like decided not to come so it's not that he changed his plans but he decided for their sakes yeah. Yeah, I think I'll go with that. Oh, by the way, I just wanted to say I've never preached through Second Corinthians before. So this is really just my first impressions. Um, I'm using this almost as a preparation if I ever have to preach on it in the future. So take this with a grain of salt. I, I don't have the benefit of hindsight. So I'm really just reading this for the first time, trying to work it out. Um, 1 Corinthians, I've gone through that before, but 2 Corinthians, no. So it sounds as if they're criticizing him because he didn't initially fit in with the plans that he said that he would visit them 
and therefore he is very concerned about this because he wants them to to know that everything that he says, especially in terms of the certainty of the gospel, that st stays true. That doesn't affect that. But then he explains why at the end, why he did change the plans, that he changed it intentionally for their sakes, that he didn't want to be harsh on them, but he did it to spare them, he says, that did not return to you. And he says, I call God as my witness. You know, he did this intentionally for their sakes. Uh, verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith that you stand firm. I wonder how this fits in, this lording over your faith. He didn't want to come uh, to bring guilt, I guess. You know, he didn't want to just lay on his authority as an apostle, but he wants to be co-workers with them. He wants to to help them and encourage them so that they will be standing firm in Christ. You know, that's his whole purpose, whether by visiting them or by writing them. I don't know. Yeah. Um, if you have any comments, please help me out because I'm, I'm learning from this as well. Uh, he talks about, a lot about his conscience. Verse 23, I call God as my witness, but also verse 12. Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies we've conducted ourselves in the world. You know, that means he is transparent uh, in terms of just his methods, you know, the way he conducted himself in the world but also in terms of his love, especially in our relations with you, with holiness, with sincerity that are from God. We've not done so according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. And so there is this transparency that, you know, anything that he did was kind of like above board and it was holy, it was sincere, and, you know, not just according to worldly wisdom, but still they conducted themselves accordingly in the world. That means when they looked at them, even using using their standards, you know, it was above board, but that isn't the ultimate standard. The ultimate standard is actually God's holiness and sincerity and God's grace. And so verse 13, he says, we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. That's quite helpful, actually, for anyone who is like, writing stuff or communicating something from God's word that ultimately is not just what we are faithful in writing and communicating, not nah, here you go, here's the gospel, but that they can understand that someone hearing this will be able to get and, you know, not not go, oh, what's, it, what's he going, what's going on about with this Paul, this person, you know, he's, he's trying to make sure that the point of my speaking is your understanding. And that's the mark of a good teacher. You know, Mark, a good teacher always, always is thinking, how will my students get this? The lesson isn't learned. The lesson isn't taught until the lesson is learned, that kind of principle. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is that process, you know, they they will come to understand. So he doesn't mean that, you know, everything will, he knows that they won't get everything yet, but he wants to help them to get there. And that point of destination or that point of this lesson is that they can boast of us and we can boast of you, that they won't be ashamed of them. And which was the case in 1 Corinthians, they were ashamed of them because of Paul's sufferings, because they had these other guardians, these other more impressive teachers, but that they will see that they were the real thing, bringing to them the real gospel. And they will actually boast, hey, you know, they were, we actually learned and, and received this fullness of the gospel from them. And that Paul himself will boast in them, seeing their faithfulness and their grace and their love as a church that really stands on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yep, 
So okay, all right. I think that's that's enough by way of introduction for just the first chapter of Second Corinthians.、Uh, we'll continue to learn more as we work our way through this book.、Uh, until then, thank you so much for joining me. This has been the Daily Bible Reading Show.、Uh, let me pray and close today's reading. Thank you, Father, for you know this kind of transparency that we do have in our leaders around us who love us. In the Lord Jesus Christ, and who teach us the gospel to remain faithful in Him, we pray that for this growth that will happen through this kind of ministry, that will grow in understanding, grow in love for one another. Thank you as well for changing plans. You know that Paul, you know,、uh, despite his initial plans, he was willing to change them for the sake of the Corinthians, for the sake of showing them love, and so that they might grow in his trust of him and their assurance of the gospel. This isn't a show of his, you know, of his shiftiness,、uh, but actually he's doing. He's he's being just so transparent about what he's doing. And therefore, he keeps wanting to remind us that the certainty of the gospel remains true. It is always yes in Christ, and this affirmative, this assurance, you know, is something that we stand on. This is assurance is something that we rely on and we repeat every time we preach the gospel. Help us to do this in a faithful, in a clear, in a loving way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you tomorrow. Bye.